Welcome to the State Bar of Texas podcast, your monthly source for conversations and curated content to improve your law practice with your host, Rocky Deer. Hello and welcome to the State Bar of Texas podcast recorded from the annual meeting in Austin, Texas. This is Rocky Deer. And I'm Lawrence Coletti. And we're your hosts for today's show, which is being sponsored by LawPay. Trusted by more than 35,000 law firms to accept legal payments online, it's the only payment solution offered as a member benefit by the State Bar of Texas. Joining us now, we have David McCraw. Welcome to the show, David. Thanks for having me. Glad to be here. So before we start talking about, actually, for those of you wanting to know, we're going to be talking about the First Amendment. All right. So before we start talking about Amendment Number 1 to our Constitution, please, David, tell us more about yourself. I am the Deputy General Counsel at the New York Times. In that role, I am the chief newsroom lawyer for the, for the time. So anything that deals with threats of being sued for libel, reviewing stories beforehand to avoid getting threats from people who want to sue us for libel, freedom of information, dealing with subpoenas and reporters, all of that falls within, within my portfolio. Part of a 12-person legal department. Legal department covers a lot of things. We're a public company, so we have corporate lawyers, we have employment lawyers, we have... IP lawyers, but, but my focus is primarily the newsroom. And so when you're talking about the First Amendment and in, in today's environment, is it just as, as simple as saying, look, are we allowed to say it? Or are there more, is there more nuance maybe to the, to the First Amendment questions that you have to deal with? I do a presentation with our standards editor. He, he's in charge of ethics. And he always complains, your part's easy and my part's hard. Why does he say that? <laughs> well, because whether you should print something is a, yes or no. <laughs> is, you know, whether you should print something is a complicated, complicated question. Is it fair? Does it violate people's privacy? Is it balanced? Uh, is it in context? The First Amendment is so powerful in this country that for me, it's generally pretty easy. We can do that. Uh, there are times when we may need to change something so that we don't risk a lawsuit. Uh, but, but by and large, the protection of the press in this country has remained really, really vibrant. And when people talk about, is the First Amendment under threat, my answer is yes, but not because we're concerned about change in law. So how is it under threat then? That's, I think it's under threat. You walked into that question, David. <laughs> I hope you understand. Yeah. Well, I call it the hearts and minds problem, that the the real threat to freeing the press is the discrediting of it, the delegitimization of it, if I could use that term, that a, a disbelieved press or a discredited press or an ignored press has no power. It can't serve democracy. It's really not that different from a, from a shackled press. It's the same thing. A shackled press, why do I believe what's there? The government controls it. When you have this constant drumbeat of fake news and enemy of the people, it's inviting people to dismiss. And there was a poll while I was writing my, my book, Truth in Our Times, that I saw while, while I was in the middle of writing it, which showed that 26% of the people believe that the president should have the power to close down news organizations that misbehave. That's an incredible, incredible statistic. That's a big statement to make. It's yeah. a big statement to make because, look, nobody has to love the New York Times and nobody has to love mainstream media. In fact, the criticism of mainstream media is really important. It's mm. like any powerful institution that should be subject to criticism. But the idea that the balance of power should be that the president can shut it down if 
he somehow finds that the that the press has misbehaved is 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 astonishing. That's not what Thomas Jefferson had in mind. Now let me play devil's advocate yeah. for a second because you know. I do on occasion read things. It's it's not often. I try to avoid it if I can. I'd much rather <laughs> I'd much I'd much rather look out the window and stare off into the distance. But when I do read and and when I read news articles, I've noticed no matter no matter which side of the political divide you're on, there is, at least in my view, increasingly more I guess editorializing or use of language that seems to be aimed at leading a reader to a particular conclusion. Regardless of who's in the White House, it's the president did something good, president did something bad, as opposed to here's what the president did and agree or disagree, and you make that decision for yourself. Do you agree with that overall sentiment I just laid out? And if so, what role do you think that plays into this whole First Amendment dialogue that the country's going through right now? The answer to the question, do I agree, would be that it well depends on what media you're looking at. Okay. I, I often talk about the current media as being the world's biggest, baddest Las Vegas buffet. Everything is there, right? Mm. Everything is there. And if you want to spend all your time at the dessert table, you can. Uh, and that's what I look at as cable, the cable networks. Okay, gotcha. You go down there, and they're going to tell you exactly what you already believe, and you're going to feel great for a while, just like you are at the, when you're eating at the dessert table. I'm hoping that people will find their sustenance elsewhere. I, I draw the line like this on, on, on point of view. I do think facts have to be put into context. If someone's not telling the truth, I think that they, that the news organization can't just be a stenographer, can't just say, well, he said it, and you, dear reader, figure it out. Mm. If the facts contradict what's being said, I think it has to be put in context. I don't think of that as bias. I think that of that as making it meaningful. I am concerned about many news organizations, and I, I hope the Times on its good days doesn't fall in this category, that believe that readers have to be told what to think. And I think that's part of the distrust of the media is so much of what people are seeing, uh, what people are hearing and reading, uh, feels like it's coming from advocacy. And I think the, res the reaction to that is to cleave to those voices that you agree with and ignore the ones you don't. And I think that leads to a bad place for democracy. Yeah, you know, I wanted to add to that, David. You know, I think, uh, you know, I consume the news quite a bit, you know, with what we do at Legal Talk Network, we always want to take, you know, stay on top of the most breaking stories. And so I consume everything that I could possibly, you know, listen to, watch or read. And uh, I got to say, I, I do have noticed in the last, you know, probably 10 years or maybe more that the, uh, the opinion news and the fact-based kind of journalism reporting, those lines are getting blurred. And it's across, you know, major networks and, you know, major publications. And I just, uh, I think that that, and uh, I kind of coincide that with some of, uh, there was a day when you used to be able to disagree with somebody and it didn't become a personal issue. But today, you know, uh, the political rancor, the fights and uh, everyone's interpretations of reality are becoming very contentious. And I wonder if that has something to do with it. What, what is the pressure, I guess, from an organization to ride that line? You've got people that, that tune in or read from you and they've got certain expectations yep. of your platform, but... You know, when it comes to some of the facts and there's an agenda, you know, that really gets rolled into potentially a very toxic situation. So I think uh, I just wanted to kind of hear your opinion on that as, as somebody that uh, pervades the news. I can't but. believe you just said that. I'm so offended. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this is a very tough environment to, to, to play it straight. And, and I think that 
at the times there there is a belief that that's how we should play it, that that ultimately was where the market is for us. Unfortunately, I think for the market for a lot of people is in being is in aligning with a particular point of view. But I talk about in my book an example of why it's hard to go up against your readers. Because in some ways, you know, when we talk about the First Amendment, a lot of it is, well, the, you stood up to the government. Well, that, that is a form of courage. But sometimes standing up to your reader is a, is a different form of courage. We did a story about an alt-right guy, and we portrayed him as being kind of an average schlub you know, who, mm-hmm. you know, shopped at Target and ate at, at, at TGIF. And, you know, that was he was just a guy. Wow, With, I'm a schlub. I just realized <laughs> I'm a schlub. I meet both of those criteria. <laughs> and, you know, we didn't portray him as, as an evil Nazi sort. We portrayed him as a completely misguided average guy. And that, to me, was what the story was about, was how did he have these anti-American, un-American ideas? given the way he lived and grew up. The reaction to that was very, very bad. People said that you're normalizing hate, that you are uh, giving a platform to somebody whose views are repugnant. And I was disappointed in that reaction. Mm -hmm. I think we need to understand who these people are. I mean, if if you happen to be a person who thinks that the alt-right and anti-Semitism and all that needs to be halted in America, and I certainly am one of those people, I want to know who they are. I want to understand them because that's the only way we have any chance of of reaching them. I I really enjoyed Lawrence's question because, you know, and and I enjoyed your response because it sounds like there's also this tug of war, if you will, between highlighting those whose opinions we disagree with or giving them license to just have those opinions under the radar, in the quiet, in the privacy of their own homes and in their own little echo chambers. And when you do that latter, presumably that, that doesn't solve the problem, that just... That just sweeps it under the rug and still lets it, lets it fester. Is this a topic that, in, in your view, from your vantage point, do you think that we've always had this problem? Or do you think this has become more highlighted in recent years? The problem of partisanship? Or? Well, the, the, problem of, the problem of how you present a differing point of view and people not necessarily... On the one hand, if you don't talk about issues you disagree with, yeah. then you're ignoring them. On the other hand, if you talk about them, you're normalizing it. Right. And so there's that, there's that tug of war. I think one of the bad things that happened in America is the rise of the word normalization. Look, in my book, I go back and, and say that story reminded me a whole lot about work that was done by Hannah Arendt decades ago about the prosecution of Nazis. Hmm. When she covers the Eichmann trial in, in Israel— the subtitle of her book, or the title of her book, is The Banality of Evil, that Eichmann was not some extraordinary monster, <laughs> despite mm-hmm. what he did. You know, he was an average guy who somehow found no problem engaging in horrible acts. And Wake she wanted to drink orange juice right, in the morning right, or do right, whatever, right? right. She yeah. wanted to convey that, and she got slammed for that. And it's the same thing, is that, mm. you, you know, we may want to think of our monsters as being monsters, but unfortunately many of our monsters are men and women, and we need to understand that. Again, if we're going to teach in school how not to become that, if we're going to speak up to it, I think we have to deal with it as it really is, not as we would want it to be. They're often, well, quote, well-intentioned monsters. They think they're doing something perfectly fine. I, I don't know if, in, in your view, in the work you've done, do evildoers necessarily know that they're evildoers? 
It probably goes into an area of philosophy that, that often exceeds what, what I'm doing in my work, but it raises that the question that we started with in, in my mind, which is that how do you how do you cover these things in a, in a way that conveys what people need to know? But the, the point I'd come back to is that the First Amendment allows that kind of speech. It allows the alt-right to have their websites and the anti-Semites to have their websites and so forth. And I think that's why... There's such a struggle now to get people to understand that standing up for free speech does not mean endorsing that speech. Mm -hmm. And standing up for free speech also means that all of us, all of us need to participate and speak out, speak out against the ideas <laughs> that we dislike. And, you know, Lawrence asked the question, all, all the media concern about ha making a business and it's much easier to flatter your readers than to challenge them. We need readers to accept the challenge. Hmm. Interesting. Interesting. You know, David, from one of your uh, sections of your presentation, what I thought was so fascinating was how the, the modern media formats are presenting a lot of challenges to First Amendment protections, and they're, they're skirting into different areas of law just by the nature of their apparatus. And you brought up a few examples. You brought up some uh, photography of John Lennon from 1980. You brought up uh, some pictures that were recently shared uh, online, I think was by Elon Musk. And then uh, there was another example where there was an embedded player, and they were all kind of treated differently from that. And I just... I, it was fascinating to me how that's evolved in these new ways that we connect. So I just love to highlight some of those uh, some of those talking points. Yeah, the rules that guarantee free press came into existence from a series of Supreme Court decisions between 1964 and 1989. And when they wrote, when the Supreme Court wrote about press freedom, they knew what a journalist was, and they understood what journalistic standards were, and they understood what media was. That's all been blown up. has <laughs> left town. And so the, the kind of questions that I was talking about today was, uh, it starts in, in esoteric places. You know, we, we now have journalism that's produced by machines. Mm -hmm. We have stock reports, stories that look like they're written by human beings. They were actually written by machines. We have sports stories that were actually written by machines. If they get it wrong, if they make a mistake and, and the organization gets sued, What's negligence? Does it, can a machine be negligent? <laughs> okay. mm -hmm. But then you get into, into these questions of a, a medium like Twitter. And one of the cases that I talk about both in my book and, and, in, and in the presentation today was a case in which Donald Trump was sued for libel for what he said on Twitter. He writes a very, very nasty, nasty tweet about a political consultant, and she sues. And the judge says, nobody would have thought that was factual. <laughs> You have to have a fact to have a libel case, and anybody reading Twitter looking for facts is, is nuts. You know, it, mm. it, it's, an, it's, an, it's a medium for opinion. That kind of thing was never in the contemplation of the Supreme Court 50 years ago when they're writing these incredible decisions. They're seeing the New York Times. They're seeing CBS News. They're not seeing the individual. This is the individual communicator. This is, this is, is really a time where, you know, if you say you're a journalist, and you have a Facebook page, well, I, I guess you are. <laughs> well, definitely, uh, you know, the, the platforms definitely allow people to rise up uh, kind of from nowhere and, uh, you know, become a news source. Um, you know, one of the things, and you're, you're just talking about, um, you know, the ability to share and, you know, Twitter and, you know, one of the things that's recently kind of come up, and I think unfortunately so, is the, the uh, concept of doxing, 
where you're yeah. deliberately putting out into the the internet forever for everyone to see someone's personally identif- uh, identifiable information, which could get them hurt. You know, there's nuts out there. You know, people yep. that would uh, do someone harm, and uh, you know, there's some there's some ramifications for putting that there. And of course, there's a you know First Amendment protects your free speech, but that's got to be with these new mechanisms. It's got to be being called in the check. Like, what is your right to share information about a person that may be publicly available, but not attached to this person in such a way that creates a fervor against them? Yeah, it, it's a it's a really big issue for us because many of our reporters are the subject to that. You know, we we see incredible incredible attacks online. People who in on the dark web who post the not just the address of our reporters, but where their children go to school. And in my presentation today uh, and, and at the end of my book, I talk about this Tim Wu's idea that Twitter has killed the First Amendment, that the speech on social media is often a weapon. It's not doing anything that conventional speech was intended to do raise ideas, make people laugh, <laughs> make people cry, the kind of things that speech were intended to do. They, it has become a weapon. And I see that. I agree that, that he's right about that. The question is, what are you going to do about it? Mm-hmm. And he struggles in the articles that he's written about, do you turn the power over to government to regulate free speech? How do you draw that line? What does weaponized speech look like that, it, that makes it different from protected speech? Those are really hard questions, but I think they're inevitably going to be asked. It's the same. It, it, in some ways, they're also wed to the what I think is the other big digital question about the First Amendment. When you have YouTube, when you have Twitter, when you have Facebook, which is, they're so powerful, are they really just First Amendment protected organizations? providing speech or are they the public park and should they be open to every point of view? Well, Dave, if I could, one last yeah. question maybe is where do you think we go from here? I mean, it, it looks like we ser- we've got a serious problem probably prompted by technology and the advancement of our means of communication. What's next in your view? Somebody wrote a, an email to me that, that began, why did you write your book? And, <laughs> and I decided not to read that email right away because I knew it was going to go someplace bad, or at least I thought I did. I was wrong. She said, why did you write your book? You should be writing for children. You should be writing (laughs) for young adults. And I think if we're going to go someplace good, it's there. It's teaching young people how to be better media consumers, how to unplug in many cases, but how also to consider the source. Where's that information coming from? Can I trust it? How do I make a judgment? Teaching people that they need to go to various places to, to get information. I was speaking at a college a while ago. Students stood up and said, you know, what, what should we do about Breitbart News? And I said, read it. And he about, you know, about fell into his seat again. Yeah. <laughs> you know, because sure. you know, what, he, what he wanted me to say was, well, we should, you know, ban, ban it. it. <laughs> right, yeah, right, I'll right. It. Sure. And we only need to ban it if people can't self-regulate and question and have discernment. So that's not a really satisfying answer, but that to me is the answer. The, the people hold their destiny in, in, in their hands on this one. Well, it looks like we've reached the end of our program. I want to thank David McCraw for joining us today. Thank you, David. Thank you. It was a great interview. Enjoyed it. This was this was a pleasure. Now, if our listeners have questions or would like to follow up, how can they get a hold of you? Feel free to email me. My email is my last name, mccraw at nytimes.com. Okay, there we go. Now, that is all the time we have for this episode of the State Bar of Texas podcast, brought to you by LawPay. Thank you again, LawPay. 
Also, thank you to our listeners for tuning in. If you like what you heard, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcasting app. I'm Rocky Deer. I'm Lawrence Coletti. Until next time, thank you for listening. If you'd like more information about today's show, please visit LegalTalkNetwork.com. Go to TexasBar.com slash podcasts. Subscribe via Apple Podcasts and RSS. Find both the State Bar of Texas and Legal Talk Network on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Or download the free app from Legal Talk Network in Google Play and iTunes. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, the State Bar of Texas, Legal Talk Network, or their respective officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, or subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer.